from the boardroom to the shop floor. Good business runs on good governance. Join esteemed expert in governance, Dr. Nimrod Dembele, for the next hour as he takes us beyond governance, making sense of doing business in South Africa. A very good evening and welcome to tonight's episode of Beyond Governance. As always, I am pleased to share this space and time with you, you the loyal and faithful listener of the show. As always, your audience and views are greatly appreciated as they shape the texture and the trajectory of our conversations uh, together uh, with our esteemed guests uh, who graciously from time to time share their intellectual property with us. Thanks for allowing us to shed light and, and solution to some of the most complex uh, governance issues, drawing you know key lessons here at home and of course abroad. Uh, after all, this country is never dull. Uh, we all know that. There's always something exciting and, and positive. Uh, by way of, you know, in that way, we always obviously need to celebrate from time to time uh, epic, you know, uh, 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 successes, but also recognize there's a need for us to, you know, to, to arrest, you know, the epic failures that we see from time to time. Anyway, as we move forward, thanks to High Drive Team, uh, Drive Team for a job well done. They'll be back in your radio tomorrow. So give them your audience as we, and, and as we say goodbye to Simon and, and his team, let's say hello to the Beyond Governance team. Tonight we are graced by Greg's presence as well as Tabisa, who is the coordinator of the show. Uh, folks, thank you very much for making time and making sure that everything goes as smooth as possible. Uh, you as a listener, I encourage you to weigh in on a conversation as we uh, I have a, an astute thought leader in our midst. I'm quite excited. Um, uh, as we have Richard Foster, I will give you a heads up about Richard Foster uh, when we get to the, the conversation with him. But at the high level, Richard is a chartered governance practitioner as well as a chartered director. He holds postgraduate qualification in corporate law, tax law, corporate governance, uh, and he has been a senior manager in a number of uh, large, uh, you know, global groups such as Anglo, Mondi, and Old Mutual. So if you are quite, uh, I mean, he's definitely a quite knowledgeable individual in this space. And should you, uh, I'm sure you'd be quite, you know, eagerly interested to hear the kind of conversation, uh, um, Richard and I will have. And you might even also want to have questions for him. In, in that way, do you give us uh, your, your thoughts via our text line, which is 34519. The telegram is 061-895-1095. Uh, as I said earlier on, this show is, you know, the quest of the show is to heighten uh, knowledge and understanding of the corporate governance uh, uh, or the importance of that, rather, uh, of corporate governance as a key strategic lever for sustainability. And, and I did indicate earlier, earlier that we often bring seasoned professionals who have a substantial amount of experience uh, and who who would obviously share their their, their thoughts with us. Um, you know, in kick starting tonight's conversation, I, I was quite intrigued by two quotes which I just quickly want to share with you. Uh, the one was by the former chairperson of U.S. Security Exchange Commission, uh, and the other one, uh, who, I mean, who is um, and of course, the other one was uh, by the former CEO of the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, Nikki, uh, Nikki Newton King. The first one goes as follows: the one by you know uh, Arthur Levitt, who is the former chairperson. It goes as follows, and I quote: "If a country does not have reputation for strong corporate governance practices, 
Capital flow elsewhere. Sorry, capital will flow elsewhere. If investors are not confident with the level of disclosure, capital will flow elsewhere. If a country opts uh, for lax uh, accounting and reporting standards, capital will flow elsewhere. Uh, uh, that and, and called by Levitt, uh, you know, who used to be the former U.S. security exchange. The, the second one, as I pointed out earlier, is that by Nick Newton, and it goes as follows, and I quote, the age of globalization, uh, uh, any investor can, in the age of global, uh, you know, globalization, any investor can choose where they want to trade or invest. That is why South Africa has to fight for every cent of investment in dollar. All South African businesses need to embrace global standards if they want to benefit from the increased investment uh, that includes reporting and sustainability, close quote. Just on these two quotes, one gets to ask a fundamental question on how a country such as South Africa or any company for that matter can compete for you know, uh, global investment or trade when there is, a, when there is no trust and obviously confidence in the, in the leadership. Look no further. Look at the Zona Commission and the kind of debt that has been unearthed and, and the extent to which public and private, uh, you know, confidence has been eroded, uh, based on what the kind of stuff that is coming out, uh, from the Zona Commission. So there's obviously a need for us as a country to move, you know, forward very swiftly, particularly in the context of you know, the, the unemployment rate, which runs into what close double digits, approach, probably approaching 40%, depending on the kind of, uh, you know, uh, definition that you want to pursue. We also, we, we have about four, just over 14 million South Africans that are unemployed. We've got over 17 million South Africans on social grounds. I mean, this is just depressing as you, as you look at it at the face value. So what does it mean from a governance point of view? One of the biggest Tenants of government is decisive and courageous leadership. Do we have it? I don't know. What do you think? Those are some of the issues that we ponder uh, as we as, as we proceed. Because ultimately, if you can't change the bigger picture, um, you know, there's no way in which you and I could be, you know, uh, emancipated, if you like, from this economy quagmire as we experience it. But anyway, as I proceed. Uh, I want to have a quick reflection in terms of issues that I found fascinating. What do you make of the, the retrenchment at the SAA? I mean, firstly, we've heard that a um, uh, number of people have been retrenched uh, and none of the monies has been, that has been promised have been you know, forthcoming. We also heard that the SAA technical, uh, 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 you know, technical division has lost its um, CEO, Adam Boss, who has resigned. Uh, you know, Adam's resignation is followed very hot on the heels by the chairperson of the SAA, as well as Mango Nico, um, Mango CEO. You know, that also tells you a lot about the kind of turnaround, uh, that is going to be required, you know, because when you don't have sustained, uh, institutional memory, uh, in the case of Mango, for example, and of course ASAA, um, it's going to be very difficult uh, for new incumbents to really make a, a difference. Uh, but anyway, the other issue that I found very fascinating, which uh, uh, I'm sure most South Africans uh, had a similar view, it is that of the former uh, chair and the former board member of the South African Airway, Yakwe 
Quinana, uh, who, <laughs> goodness, I don't know what you make of this. I mean, firstly, uh, when she was when, when she was interrogated uh, at the commission yesterday, she had forgotten that uh, SAA at some point signed a five-year, you know, five-year deal. Uh, with, with, with Swiss port, we are told to the tune of one billion rand. And she didn't, she didn't know about it. How on earth would you not know the kind of quantum that you've seen? What does that make you as a director? Does that inspire confidence from a diligence point of view? I beg to differ. The other issue that, um, was, was quite staggering is the fact that she at some point, uh, wanted to, you know, the advocate Kate Hoffmeyer to accuse himself or herself as she accused her of receiving kickbacks to the tune of about 4.3 million. What do you make of those kind of allegations? In the same token, she has also been accused of trying to solicit up to 100 million rands of kickbacks from a U.S. company to influence tenor processes. Is it a coincidence that so many uh, uh, allegations have been leveled. Anyway, time will tell. Let's just see. Let's just give the Zona Commission its opportunity to really put these issues, uh, uh, forward. On that note, without any waste of time, let me take this opportunity to welcome, uh, Richard, as I indicated earlier. Uh, Richard, good evening and welcome to Beyond Governance. Uh, good evening, Nimrod, and thank you very much for the invitation. Pleasure to be here. The pleasure is mine indeed. Uh, Richard, um, one of the critical questions that, you know, often comes through is the whole notion of corporate governance. From where you're sitting, from where you're sitting, what does it, what does it really mean and why do we make a fuss about corporate governance? Well, uh, I think you already answered the question, uh, to some extent, uh, earlier on in terms of, you know, attracting, uh, foreign investment. And uh, what is corporate governance all uh, all about? It's uh, all about uh, ethical and effective leadership of organizations, sustainable organizations. So, you know, at the outset, if we, we don't have effective corporate governance uh, systems in place, uh, you run the risk of having uh, failing companies and both in the uh, the public and the private sector. And uh, I think one must take cognizance of the fact that, uh, you know, it's actually both the sectors that, that need focus. So, you know, in a, in a lot of countries, uh, if you have a look at the corporate governance codes around the world, they're very much focused on uh, listed entities. Uh, a lot of the codes are regulated by the uh, various uh, stock exchanges, or owned by them, drafted by them. Whereas uh, certainly in South Africa, things have been, uh, well, things are different. Uh, there's been a much more of a broad form approach to try and ensure better corporate governance, as I say, across the board. And whether we're talking SAA, whether we're talking uh, FNB, or whether we're talking uh, Cricket South Africa, there's another example, or a school. I mean, if you look at the key principles or the fundamentals of corporate governance, you know, ethical, effective leadership, the way organizations are governed and controlled, doesn't make any difference whether you're listed, whether you're large, whether you're small. I think this is what or the message one needs to try and get across that 
corporate governance is actually, it's not about compliance. It's actually a value driver for sustainable business. Thank you very much for that insight, and I couldn't agree with you more. By the way, I had an opportunity to peruse the article that you that you've written, which I would encourage uh, the listener to get hold of it. It is, it is entitled "Critical Insights into COVID 19s Impact on Organization Through the Lens of King Four Report," which is pretty much the end of which we're going to assume in this particular conversation tonight. Um, and I, I, like I said earlier, I would encourage, you know, the listener to get hold of that article. I find it very easy to read and interesting. Um, you pointed out in this particular um, article, as we are unpacking, you know, the, the whole notion of corporate governance in the context of COVID-19, one of the principal um, outline in, in Q4, which you have alluded to, uh, which is principle one, uh, that requires the, um, you know, uh, the companies to be led ethically and effectively. Uh, and that presupposes in my mind that um, organizational leadership has cultivated a culture which appreciate uh, a long-term view. Um, and, and, and my assumption is that most of the unethical conduct are as a result of short-term view or, or, you know, an attempt to focus on bottom line without really appreciating the long-term view. What's your view? What's your view on that particular point? No, I think this is one of the uh, the key challenges in uh, corporate governance globally is the fact that, uh, you know, we've always had a shareholder primacy model. It's companies have tended to be bottom line driven. I mean, particularly if one has to be critical and you have a look, you know, and I mean, a lot of this has its foundation in legal principles, you know, with the uh, legal incorporation of a company and companies have played to the, um, to the shareholder and uh, the shareholders being king or (laughs) queen, so to speak. And uh, the model is needed to change. And in fact, very interestingly, uh, last month we uh, acknowledged the 50th anniversary of Milton Friedman, an economist in uh, the U.S. in the 70s, was the, I think, economic policy advisor to Ronald Reagan. And he said the sole purpose of a company is to generate profits for its shareholders. And 50 years later, we, you know, looking at this, and when I say we academics, business people are saying, well, can that still actually hold true in a society where businesses are dependent on their stakeholders, big businesses, small businesses, this whole notion of the triple context. In other words, when you look at profit, you also need to look at uh, the environment and social issues, and you need to balance those issues. So for one moment, you know, I certainly uh, don't support uh, the notion where, we, uh, you know, businesses are run on the exclusion of focus of profits because, you know, capitalism, whatever form you may look at it in, uh, is still capitalism, but we're really starting to, to realize, and I think that uh, – you need a different lens in terms of a more responsible capitalism, a more inclusive capitalism or stakeholder capitalism. And uh, just on that again, in uh, South Africa, if you look at the evolution of the uh, the King reports, um, and since our democracy, South Africa has been pretty much ahead of the curve in terms of its governance guidelines in trying to drive that notion. And as I say, ahead of the curve, ahead of the global curve. 
And uh, this year in uh, in Davos, World Economic Forum, uh, it was acknowledged again or reinforced that one has to look at business differently. I mean, environment, we're looking at the advent of climate change. And from a social point of view, you know, the uh, the increased disparity in income, the, you know, you'll see uh, various projections and one doesn't know where the tipping point in is, but uh, there's got to be a tipping point on uh, both those uh, uh, trajectories. And uh, where will the tipping point be, you know, on the social side where, you know, we saw Arab Spring um, and particularly in the, I think, in the developing economies. So one has to recognize more has to be done to try and uh, stabilize these uh, social inequities. And I think on that, if you have a look at the past few months and COVID-19, you know, I've said in my article, which you've read, and I say generally, I think COVID has been the spotlight or uh, the catalyst to actually uh, turn up the focus on, well, companies, sure, they have to make profit, but they are so dependent on their stakeholders. And perhaps to some extent, the focus on uh, the environmental issues has... Uh, uh, has lessened to, to some degree. And in fact, there have been uh, positive attributes of people traveling less, flying less, uh, so the carbon footprints have uh, reduced. But on the other side, I think from a social point of view, uh, boardroom leadership and shareholders alike have recognized that we are very dependent on our stakeholders and one cannot sustain businesses in an environment or an economy that's not sustainable. And one has had to, you know, look at this interaction far more critically. Perhaps, Nimrod, just to, to finish off on that, the the other key driver in terms of short-term, long-term views, and, I mean, it's an industry I also come from and uh, uh, still involved with, is the investment industry. And, um, you know, we now talk about, you know, use acronyms ESG investing. In other words, focus on environment, social and governance issues as institutional investors when they go and talk to the investee companies. And I think the, the realization, and we've seen it, uh, we've seen it coming through in the US with uh, groups like uh, BlackRock, Culpers, Hermes, where they've actually started to have a deeper conversation and a deeper engagement with the investee companies saying, you know what, it's now about sustainable returns. We need to understand your strategy better and understand whether you as a industry are around for the, uh, the longer term. Having said that, I mean, shareholders can trade, uh, trade shares as they, they feel fit. But as I say, if you look at the ecosystem, I think the realization is there that uh, one needs to look on a longer-term basis because ultimately the beneficiaries of these, I mean, the asset managers, not their own funds, uh, the asset owners or the uh, the pension funds, the man in the street, they're the beneficial owners, and they have a much longer uh, uh, lens in terms of the uh, period they look at the investment criteria. I mean, if you're in a pension fund, you may be looking, unless you're going to retire shortly, you may be looking at 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years. 
So do you want to just be invested in companies that have a, you know, two or three year lifespan and uh, the next minute they, they've gone? Here's, you know, here's, here's something that um, I found quite interesting. In on one level, we, you know, there's almost an expectation that, you know, the the, the stakeholders need to have a long-term view, in that, you know, for them to 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 accrue substantial kind of returns, and 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 which also presupposes that there's there's this confidence, and to the leadership that one they'll be ethically. And there will be, there will, there will serve the interest of the stakeholders, uh, 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 you know, not, not to rip them off, so to speak. One, you know, I just want you to ponder that issue because I think it's quite critical because especially in a South African uh, setup, we've seen, uh, you know, uh, you know, entities such as Stanoff, for an example, um, that, that has just literally obliterated substantial uh, uh, shares within a very short space of time. Decision, you know, law requires you as well to make a decision in the best interests of the organisation, and that obviously means to consider your each of your key stakeholders, which you should have identified in the first place, uh, in terms of your decision making. And some practical examples: if you have a look uh, at uh, SAA, do you retrench or do you take? certain other steps. You know, the mining industry, do you uh, retrench employees? Do you uh, pay the uh, uh, dividends as per expectations of some of your institutional shareholders? So this is the dilemma or this is the challenge I think that uh, directors are faced with. And in law, they're required to, to show they've applied their mind and as I say, made an informed decision. And in practice, you know, again, board is a democracy, and you might have very differing views on your board as to what is right or what is wrong at the, you know, at a point in time. And as I say, uh, COVID-19, I think, has highlighted this again with many companies having to, uh, you know, take a deep, hard uh, look at themselves and say, well, can we afford to pay uh, dividends? We uh, realize, you know, by not paying or passing on dividends, it'll have a negative uh, impact on the shareholders. But how do we keep the uh, how do we keep the business sustainable? Do we retrench employees? Do we take pay cuts at executive level? If we do take pay cuts at executive level, of what order of uh, magnitude? So these are all decisions that need to be taken considering your stakeholder profile in the best interest of the organization. You know, and as the environment changes and circumstances change, the priorities of stakeholders will change as well. And, uh, you know, I'm giving examples where even if you do have effective uh, and uh, ethical leadership, what if you don't? Um, that's where I think a, a lot of the issues have um, have come in where, you know, as certain stakeholders have been favoured uh, over over others. And as I say, what the right balance is, one can, you know, uh, directors uh, have often said, well, you can't please everybody, but you need to demonstrate that you've applied your mind and you do what's necessary in the best interests of the organisation. And that is, as I say, uh, recognising your, your key stakeholders. So easier said than done in... Uh, in some circumstances, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. But here's another issue that that, that I find interesting um, that you raised, which 
bedeviled pretty much every board, I would imagine, is that of uh, conflict of conflicts of interest, and the extent to which conflict of interest can be mitigated by a balance of executive and non-executive uh, board members, especially your independent uh, board members. Uh, and how do you find that kind of a balance uh, playing out in terms of mitigating the risk um, around conflict of interest? Well, I mean, if you look at the uh, characteristic of independence and you say, well, this is a key underpin for good corporate governance to ensure independent thinking, balance of power is brought to board decisions. That's what you're trying to achieve. So criticism back 2008, 2009, learnings from the global financial crisis, um, that uh, maybe too much emphasis was placed on uh, independent directors. Uh, King 3 received some uh, criticism in South Africa that uh, too much focus was placed on on independence, uh, one of the uh, local uh, chairman of a very large group was very vocal, and uh, perhaps there was truth in in what he he said. That generally, I think directors uh, don't know what they're doing, and this focus on independence is uh, way overdone. And what was he actually getting at? That sometimes you can have directors that are so independent, so they comply with King. And all other governance guidelines, they tick the box from the point of view of being uh, independent, or we can show we've got three or four independent directors. But the learnings have been some of those independent directors, have they actually understood the business? Have they understood the core business? Are they able to challenge a particularly strong CEO and management team? And I guess that's where the the challenge comes in. And again, if you have a look at governance guidelines today, and certainly, you know, in South Africa, King advocates a balance of knowledge, skills, experience, diversity, and independence being one criteria. So if you have to trade one issue, your one aspect off for the other, well, uh, then, uh, then so be it. And just on that, I mean, we've had a couple of uh, her profile uh, uh, case studies, uh, I think, uh, pretty recently where criticism has been leveled at uh, certain boards. I think, uh, you know, Comair uh, earlier this year or late last year, too many of the directors have been on too long. And uh, I commented in a press article and I said, just be cautious before one becomes too critical about, well, if you've been on the board nine years, you know, you can't be an ind- you can't be independent anymore because independence is really a state of mind. And if I had a look at that board in particular, there were directors there who I believe, and it's a personal opinion, whether you've been on the board for nine years or fifteen years, they're incredibly astute and independent-minded uh, directors. Uh, in any event, they understood the business, they understand themselves. They have the confidence to take on management, to challenge. And, uh, you know, on the converse, I've seen independent directors that within, uh, you know, a very short space of time, they're very much under the influence of the uh, the CEO and or management team or perhaps the, uh, the chairman of the company if you've got a strong chair. So these are all the practical dynamics that play out. And, uh, you know, my contention is that, one must look at the, you know, governance principles and criteria and be cautious in terms of 
just trying to look for a box to tick and try mm-hmm. and understand the, the true dynamics in terms of what is playing out on that board. Otherwise, I believe, you know, you can destroy the, uh, the fabric of the, uh, the board. It might be institutional memory or what I call institutional uh, competence, but particularly a strong board that actually understands the business and is in a position to challenge management and play the oversight role. I mean, Steinhoff went the other way. Uh, you know, the directors <laughs> were criticized that, well, they're not independent. And in the integrated report, I think the CEO said, well, they're club of friends, uh, but, you know, with relationship based on mutual trust. But club is a club. And yet, in also an integrated report, they demonstrated how rigorously that all tested the independence. As I say, one needs to look at the substance rather than the form and apply one's mind in each and every uh, case. It is quite interesting, you know, um, that, that you, you, you really, you know, uh, you know, dissect the importance of not just looking at the issues of, um, the, the, the balance, obviously, reflecting on King that you need to, you know, bring in skills, knowledge, and competence, uh, um, and the independence being one variable that needs to come to, comes to, come, come to, to the fore. My observation, my observation, however, is such that, you know, the, 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 the non-independent directors, for an example, those that come through via, um, say, mergers and acquisitions, say, for an example, company A buys the shares and deploy a director in a particular, in a company to oversee the interest um, as part of the in acquisition. How does that kind of a scenario because those folks are obviously not independent aside because they are there at the behest of um, the company which they bought or representing a specific interest. Um, you know, from your experience, how do these these kind of dynamics play out, particularly, um, you know, when you're looking at what is in the best interest of the company, not what is in the best, best interest of a constituency or a particular myopic uh, transaction which is supposedly represented by a very smart person or diligent person, you know, the kind of how do these things play out in a, in a boardroom and how do we mitigate? Do we have a mitigating strategy around these? Again, I mean, you, you're pressing all the, uh, the key buttons or hitting all the pertinent nails on the head here in terms of what some of the challenges are. And, uh, you know, I often uh, say, and I mean, uh, I've been, uh, you know, or experienced this as a representative director, so to speak, with a holding company, you know, have appointed me to a subsidiary board in an oversight capacity. And, uh, you know, I always say to, to other directors, you know, the law is, is quite clear. So you act in the best interests of the company whose board you, uh, you're sitting on. In other words, the subsidiary. You may represent a constituency and you're entitled to put the views forward of that constituency uh, in the uh, boardroom uh, deliberations and the law provides for, for all of that. It's what actually happens in a practice that can be uh, an issue. And uh, <clears throat> I think uh, key examples of this are, you know, particularly, I mean, take a medical aid fund where you have employee-appointed trustees. So you're appointed by a constituency uh, through an election process. You then go and you sit on this 
this board and you make decisions in the best interests of the fund and all its members. And yet your particular constituency may be different and have different views and want different benefits. But at the end of the day, in your legal capacity, you are uh, obliged to actually exercise your judgment in the, uh, the best interests of the, uh, the uh, company or, and or, or all its members, talking medical aids or pension funds. <coughs> Excuse me. And I think in, in this instance, one of the, the key players here is the, uh, the chair. And uh, I've seen it, you know, in the, the public sector as well. I mean, this is also a very difficult situation. If uh, you may have been deployed, so to speak, or appointed, you know, through a, an, a particular interest or political interest, and you've got to sit on the board and make that decision in law in the best interest of the organization. And, you know, tongue-in-cheek in, in uh, lecturing, whether it's uh, law students or directors, and I say, you know, the law is clear, and uh, when you ask the question, did you make the decision in the best interest of the company? And, well, you know, the shareholder or the executive authority or whoever, they influenced me. They told me what to do. And, uh, you know, somebody said to me, don't be naive. That's how it often happens in the boardroom. And I said, well, rather tell me than uh, tell the judge because uh, <laughs> the judge... The judge needs to interpret the law, and the law is what the law is. And I said, uh, as a director, I'd hate to tell a judge, the devil made me do it. And, you know, artificial intelligence, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi, the robot, actually carried out. I'm just the middleman because the law doesn't provide for that. The law provides for a director to take responsibility and accountability for the company, as difficult as it may be. And I'm not sitting here for one moment, not, uh, as I say, uh, not recognizing the practical issues that we uh, we have both in the uh, the public and the private sector, and I've named two other sectors where this uh, can be prevalent. So, yeah, it, it, is, a, it is a challenge, Nimrod. I couldn't agree with you more. One other, you know, um, practical example that I want to draw uh, your wisdom from is the the cricket SA saga. Um, I'm not sure how how well how close you you are you were with with what has happened, but I have a particular theory which I want to bounce off you in terms of the 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 composition of the board. My theory is that in environment where you have uh, constituency-based board members who are supposedly, you know, pushing an agenda based on 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 the the the, the mandate, so to speak. That lies in the biggest problem. Why? Because at the phase when we now look at the kind of configuration and the tussles that happen within Cricket SA, where as a result, we're at the board level because we have, you know, we had the independence and you know, uh, board members. Were, were overshadowed by, you know, uh, provincial, uh, interest, uh, which were characterized by some of the individuals who would probably be pushing particular directions, which mean, which was not, in my view, not in the best interest of, of Cricket SA, but PSA may in the best interest of KZN or in the best interest of Western Cape and so on and so forth. You know, this is how I think the, the, the Cricket SA a governance collapsed purely because of the composition and the strength of board members who had strong views and influence in relation to how the resources ought to be spent 
or the direction of Cricket SA had to go purely based because of the, the mandate which they bring into the, the organization, not so much about what is in the best of organization, what is in the best interest of Cricket SA, but what is in the best interest of my particular constituencies. Well, what's your take on that um, uh, assumptions or supposition that I'm, I'm throwing it in, in your line? No, again, you you're right on the uh, right on the money there, and I think it it just you know perhaps takes the example I was uh, giving earlier, like a uh, medical aid fund um, where you have these uh, different uh, constituencies, and uh, as I say again, the law itself is pretty clear. So when you're in the boardroom, and uh, you know again, I often reiterate it uh, to directors. Whatever hat you were wearing, whether it's your KZN hat, whether it's your um, your Western Cape hat, you've got to leave that at the door. You've got to put on your Cricket South Africa hat because you have a legal mandate to discharge your duty in the best interests of Cricket SA as an organization overall. And that's how you need to make your decision. And if you ever say, if you ever tested in a, in a court of law, that's what they would, would test. Well, were you just pushing the sectoral interest? And when you made that decision, Mr. or Miss, whoever it was, what did you base your decision on? And, uh, was it in a decision? Was it a decision again in the best interests of the organization overall? And, uh, again, you know, it comes back to have you got uh, a strong, uh, chair? I mean, you see this, you know, on uh, uh, municipal councils as well, where one has to also try and avoid that sometimes you get, it's almost like Survivor Island, where some of the directors caucus or form an alliance. And uh, so the law doesn't provide for alliances, caucusing. It provides for a democracy to make the best decision in the interests of the organization. Whether you're looking at public sector, whether you're looking at private sector law, and whether you're looking at how Cricket South Africa is incorporated or certain other non-profit organizations, it's all very similar. And as I say, the theory and the practice sometimes are way apart. And also what I've found is a number of organizations, certain companies as well, where they will recruit or appoint so-called independent directors. And the point you make, Nimrod, you actually crowded out in the discussions and perhaps you appointed for form rather than substance because mm-hmm. you actually cannot bring uh, sufficient independent uh, thinking to the board. And what are we looking at? Trying to achieve a balance in decision-making to uh, achieve the best outcome for that uh, particular organization. So again, uh, you know, these are, these are practical challenges. They're challenges that, um, you know, how do you mitigate this by getting the best possible, uh, you know, directors in the boardroom at chair level, at deputy chair level or at lead independent director level and, uh, independent directors also who pretty strong. And uh, having said that, also, you will find where independent directors on occasions within certain organizations have said, you know what, I'm unable to, uh, as far as I'm concerned, fully discharge my uh, fiduciary duties. And uh, given the uh, the level of interference, either by uh, other directors or the shareholder, 
and uh, best I, I move on. So, I mean, we've seen quite a lot of that as well with um, directors uh, resigning uh, for those sort of reasons. Great stuff, great stuff. If you've just joined us, I'm having a very fascinating conversation. I certainly believe you also, uh, you know, experiencing the kind of excitement that I'm experiencing with, uh, with Richard Foster here, who is the corporate governance practitioner. Do join us. I want to hear your thoughts, if you may, on 34519. The telegram is 0618951095. As we gravitate towards the end, the one question that I want to uh, get a sense from Richard, uh, particularly in the context of King 4. I mean, you've written about this particular uh, principle, principle number 14, which, which um, you know, suggests that um, that organization, you know, obviously the, 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 the board or, you know, the board needs to ensure there's, there's, a, there's a fair compensation and, and transparency around, you know, compensation, compensation of, um, you know, executives and so on and so forth. We know that in this country, uh, for an example, that's a very, you know, very uh, sensitive issue or very thorny issue. Um, let me just perhaps maybe reflect on the study that which was done by PwC. It stated that, that you know, twenty um, percent of PW, you know, twenty percent of managers, I mean, sixty-one percent of managers uh, uh, are females, uh, and yet the compensation uh, is not necessarily the same level. Um, as in the, the the male counterpart, and yet we we most of the you know companies who subscribe to King Four, particularly as it relates to Principle Fourteen uh, around fair compensation based on on gender uh, parity. Uh, where are we as a country on gender parity, and the extent to which we likely to breach or subscribe to King Four Principle as it relates to you know, this particular principle 14 on how to compensate or bridge the gender uh, gender compensation uh, parity. Well, again, um, you know, you've highlighted an issue. I mean, you're specifically referring to uh, to South Africa and uh, you've referred to the uh, PwC report. I haven't seen the numbers in the, the latest PwC report, but... Um, I mean, the, the, the principle in King, which is set at, a, at quite a high level, is quite, uh, quite clear in that it says one should remunerate fairly, responsibly and transparently. And, uh, I mean, if you give effect to that, what, is, what does fairly mean? I mean, there should be, uh, to my mind, then equitable, equitable uh, pay for, uh, you know, uh, whether it's uh, gender, race, one uh, one cannot uh, discriminate in in that regard, and um, then uh, how how do you ensure that uh, we understand that? I mean, we talk about uh, transparently, so there should be adequate disclosure uh, adequate disclosure on how you actually are, are remunerating, and um, I've certainly I mean I've been following the conversation, particularly in the uh, the UK for the last. Uh, Two to three years, and uh, you know the focus initially was on well uh, gender diversity in uh, in boardrooms. Uh, more recently, as I say, last two to three years, uh, the uh, gender equity in terms of uh, remuneration, and it's been interesting to see there that uh, you know where we're coming, where they're coming from, and uh, their sort of projections and uh, where they they're getting to. 
And the senior level, it would appear from what I've seen to be less of a challenge to provide that sort of equity. But then if you look throughout the organization that you, you have far more males occupying senior positions than females. So, I mean, that's going to skew the statistics depending how you look at it again. But certainly on uh, equal, you know, equal pay for the job performed, um, I would find it very difficult for a company to defend that in the light of, you know, certainly if they apply the uh, the King for uh, principle. I couldn't agree with you more. Unfortunately, um, Greg here tells me we need to wrap up uh, uh, as we have run out of time. You know, thank you very much, uh, Richard, uh, for coming through. It has been an absolute pleasure. I certainly would want to bring you back because uh, we have had so many unanswered questions that I wanted to put to you. But nonetheless, thank you very much for coming through. No, Nimrod, thank you for the invitation. Again, uh, the pleasure is mine. Thanks very much. And to the listeners, good night. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. There you got that. Richard Foster, who's a corporate governance practitioner, really giving us a blow by blow in terms of his understanding of corporate governance in the context of COVID-19. As we know that uh, COVID-19 has literally obliterated uh, a number of, of, of uh, you know, practices that needs to be revisited uh, so that there's no excuse. And obviously, it's not an easy topic, um, you know, to maneuver. It's not something that uh, we can actually do, uh, you know, uh, or make assumptions about whether it is easy or not. But I know that it's not easy to be sitting in that particular position. Let's do this again next week. Um, have a good one and good night.